what are perspectives made of? Life histories, cultural values, social norms, material artifacts, friendships, feelings? All these things that shape our points of view boil down to a soup so unique, so bizarre, it's almost a miracle we understand each other. Well, sometimes we do. And of perspective taking, scientists and artists have both made a profession. If we abstract the paint and the computer away, they both share this mission of grappling with the invisible structures around ideas and exposing them. This is particularly true of my two guests today, anthropologist Andreas Hopsdorf and artist Olafur Eliasson. In this episode, we discuss together their common project, EER, standing for Experimenting, Experiencing and Reflecting. The project brings scientific and artistic practices together and takes them out in public spaces. Through installations, people are invited to experiment, experience and reflect on their perspective and the one of others. And in a sort of meta twist, ER is also a fascinating story of artists and scientists having to experiment, experience and reflect on one another in order to create some work that will be interesting to them all. I'm Arno. Welcome to the Interacting Minds podcast. Before we start talking about the project itself, maybe you can tell us a little bit about each other. So Andreas, you could introduce Olafur, and Olafur, you could introduce Andreas, and we could talk about how you met and how you got together to do this project. Well, I can begin. Uh, I first met Olafur, it has been sometimes in the mid-2000s, I think. I was at Goldsmiths College in London at a strange workshop on neuroaesthetics, uh, run by a strange uh, friend of mine. and. Uh, he had been bringing together all sorts of interesting people from research, from design, from architecture, from art. Uh, I was there and, and all of us was there. And we were both giving talks. I didn't, I didn't really know of his work previously. I had seen like a few installations. But at some point during the workshop, we got a chance to talk. And at least, you know, I felt an immediate connection. Um, and Olafur sent one of his many books afterwards. And we wrote a little bit. And then somehow, you know, the line died out, out of nothing else but just too many other things on the agenda. And then I think the next couple of times we met were with uh, joint friends, uh, Dan Zahavi, a philosopher here in Copenhagen. We were also at a workshop together in Berlin on uh, compassion and mind and life where we ended up in Olafur's flat. And somehow over the years, and I can't really pinpoint it how, you know, it started from from being just high at instances to realizing that there was a person that I somehow felt there was a lot of resonance with, and it was just always incredibly interesting and gratifying the few moments we actually got to uh, to talk to each of them. And who is Olafur? Well, you know, as, a, as an artist, of course, um, he has been kind of really opening up for a very different way to think of art, particularly in public spaces, which in the first instances of it seems to be very much about in a sense, allowing yourself to discover how you discover the world. Mm -hmm. So it's exploring ways of exploring the world by making it visible to yourself 
the process that's involved in seeing the world. And I remember some of the very early exhibits. Olafur did an exhibit in Espia many years ago where he insisted that it had a lot of political implications. And I really thought that was a rubbish idea to put forward because for me it was psychophysical experiments and I couldn't see the, the politics in it at all. But, but I think increasingly I've come to understand that actually, you know, making it visible to yourself how you see the world indeed has huge political implications because there is an opening in that that says, you know, it can also be different and it's not a natural way to be in the world. So as such, as an artist, he has been doing both, you know, huge and small installations that are inserting these incredibly beautiful, but also eye-opening kind of visions into not so much what the world is like, but really how are you in it. And then as, as a person to interact with, he is, of course, full of energy and uh, you know, full of good inspirations. It's like, it's like being as, at a huge deconstructed library that points in all sorts of directions. And that's okay, because he is, <laughs> you know, in the midst of all of these inspirations and all of these megalomanic projects that actually tends to get realized, there is just an incredibly gentle and humble person to interact with that makes it worthwhile and interesting whenever okay, I think it's enough time together. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this is a, otherwise I, can, I never get to say anything, but thank you for this very um, generous introduction. I think it's... I, you put the bar high, and if you're ever going to have a conversation, I need to um, make it a little shorter than you did on me. No, so um, you're right, we met on these occasions, and I, of course, um, was interested in the fact that anthropology, which is, I guess, where you start out, uh, and, and how I somehow looked at you, was incredibly undefinable. And within anthropology, there is a like a string of people who is even more undefinable, probably even to anthropologists themselves. And you were with that group. So as much as I struggled to somehow nail what is exactly anthropology and what is it doing, there are people like you inside of anthropology who is like absolutely impossible to find out what, you're, what it is exactly you're doing. And I was fascinated by that because it seems that you're both studying the world, but you're also studying yourself, which is sort of what you said about what I was doing the kind of introspective quality of putting forward an idea was a part of an idea which essentially, essentially lives in a model of thinking, which is also an idea. And this brings us close to nowhere. And that I think is a interesting, but that's not really true, but it's an interesting way of looking at things. And I, I share that with you. But other than that, how do I see you? I mean, you're Danish and you're white, you're male, you go under the pronouns he and him. And uh, I say that because uh, if there is a listener uh, here uh, which is not familiar with this uh, table here, uh, we have three white guys having a chat based in Europe, Denmark, resourceful, uh, and, and that introduces, and so on and so forth. And that introduces uh, a, a kind of situation where we probably also are not ex acknowledging that there is a lot of other realities than the one we talked about. And that has been changing lately, a lot, somehow. So as much as I sort of suggested, like you did, Andreas, that we are both looking at the world, we're also looking at the way we look at the world. We have also a new field since 10, maybe five years uh, uh, among us, which is we're also blind. And there are things we don't see because we just can't. And that's why I think as an introduction to you, I'm talking about my blindness. Uh, but 
but somehow, as much as I was unclear about how I understood you and that I'm fascinated about, there's a bigger unclarity or blindness, and that is I accept that I'm sitting in a in a context which is you know defined by its own so say cultural potential and limitations. It is really interesting that in this description you give of each other, we already have the roots of experiencing, experimenting, and reflecting. It's a very personal thing, it seems to you, I guess, how you interact with each other. Well, I think as an artist, there is the sort of situation where you make a work of art, and then you make another one, and another one, and without maybe accepting or acknowledging it, the repetitive nature of what one does Hmm. starts to introduce things you take for granted because you think, oh, that was a success. Oh, that worked for me. And there, therefore, a degree of formalism, which is maybe contrary to the idea that you were working with, sneaks in the back door and you kind of start to formalize your own project without seeing it. Uh, and suddenly people, they start to focus on the form rather than the content. Oh, that's an interesting form. And then they don't see, oh, it's actually about, you know, who am I or something like this. And that especially in my field, because art history was for many years defined by form or like formal analytics. And, and uh, so for me, Andreas, in that sense, is so interesting as he is very much about preventing the form to take over the content. And in a, in, in, in a sort of paradoxical way, I sometimes get confused and think it's only form, all of it. And, and, and that takes a deep breath. And then you realize, oh, the instability around Andreas's work or the sort of undefined nature, is actually a very courageous form of trying to keep a yet undefinable content alive. And see, now this is really adventurous. And for me as an artistic, uh, having an artistic practice, uh, like a kind of a, a routine, or it's not exactly a ceremony, uh, sadly, but, but, but this kind of process, it's extremely important that to, to somehow be present to the process and not to the goal. I mean, so to keep the why Am I doing this on the, should I say, in the present and not at the horizon where I'm hoping to go? And Andreas is very good at that because as soon as, as you might notice in this program, we, as soon as we uh, sort of start talking, uh, it is not about the horizon, you know, as a modern idea maybe also. It is very much about, well, what's actually going on here? Why are we doing this? And let's not keep, uh, let's not forget why and be busy with how. It's it's a very good observation, yeah. uh, Arno, because you know the these three words: experimenting, experiencing, reflecting. In a sense, it it forms like three points in a triangle that, to some degree, defines what this project is about. Uh, and the more I think about it, it opens up a very kind of complex landscape. So, in my first thinking, you know, the idea was that what you would bring in from research would be this attention to experimentation. What you would bring in from the arts would be this attention to experiential qualities and that what would be created in that meeting between experiencing and experimenting and between art and research would be new spaces for reflection, both in those people that take part, but also in us as practitioners. But I think you're right, you know, as you point out that, that, that honestly, that's not how it is, because in my practice, the experimenting and the experiencing goes hand in hand. Mm. Uh, I have learned so much by some of my you know, phenomenological colleagues that have been allowing up to open that space of uh, experience as critical for whatever we do. 
And in the same sense as Olafur was pointing out, you know, a lot of what he does has these kind of strict formal qualities that yeah. are as experiments. So rather than, you know, science experiment meets arts experience, it's like two different ways of slicing that experimenting, experiencing thing that gets together and that gets reopened. And I think that actually is, is really part of the creativity and the fun of the project. Because I experience it's almost as if, you know, we are shifting roles that sometimes we come up with a research design and then Olafur will say, and usually rightly so, that that's just not precise enough. It's not tight enough, right? Or he would be coming up with some kind of an art piece and then some of my colleagues immediately opens up to say, well, well how do you take seriously the experiential qualities that are in it? <laughs> so it's not a simple kind of match together, but these dimensions are always in place. Mm. And the reflection part then becomes, I think, a defining feature for that space that we take time to actually share with each other. What is this doing that we are doing? What is it doing to us? And how can we, in a sense, learn something from it that stays there also after the experiment or the experience has been done? Or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, and that all breaks down into different fields of science, science of perception, psychology, embodiment, somatic knowledge, muscle memory. There's so much science going on that it puts the mind into the body and the body into the mind in experiential terms and takes that into a social context, awareness building. And so so the science is occasionally really progressive and it's a great luxury for me and for which I'm also very grateful to have access to Andreas's network. Um, and, and, and the way we talk about it maybe also is, maybe it's also right to say it's important to focus on that I'm looking into perception. Deep into perception, there is a, there's a field where you have to somehow de decide whether you are into cognition, or do you want to have neuroscience in there, or is yeah. it going to be more psychology, or should be, and within psychology, should it be more contemplative or more like kind of natural science type of psychology and, and, and uh, psychiatric, uh, and, and, and you sort of find a path, it's not straight, and at some point, it doesn't really become about the labels of the science. Suddenly, you are at the core question. Well, is this particular piece of question capable of articulating on somebody else's behalf something that has an impact on what kind of participation in life, society, you know, going forward in general will have? Or, you know, sometimes you get so close to something that has an impact and that I don't know whether it's really political, but Andreas, you, you brought it up as something... This is, I think, um, where we also meet the work we do and the many collaborations we have is discursive, a part of, of and plays a role in society. Maybe not a big role, but certainly not for me, uh, I think. But I do feel connected to society, and that's a very rewarding because, you know, we all know on a great day that we just feel so bloody indifferent and disconnected and doesn't really matter. And uh, And some days you just feel that, like, every little thing has a perfect space and place and meaningful purpose in the big universe. And and of course, that is a much more attractive position because on those days, we're also just nicer to each other. We do more progressive things and we have, uh, I think, a, a kind of offering and a gesture that is more um, hospitable to also things that we are not familiar with. And and so 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 there is a kind of choice. Do you want to opt for that? 
and I guess EER for me, experiencing and experiment, and, and the kind of the kind of hospitality in that is in that sense a kind of offering. It's very non-selfish, even though I'm a well, I, I'm a very extractive person. I'll just say it out loud. So, so, so in a sense, in that way, I actually um, I am very grateful for the opportunity to also be offering or co-offering or co-producing something that I think is very progressive. And I think, you know, we have been going through already kind of interesting changes in what the focus is about. So at first, when we thought about experiments, it was very much about perception and about the body. And I think partly uh, informed by the COVID experience, um, the notion of blindness and the, the notion of perception shifted from some, to something else. As Olafur was uh, starting, realizing that your own position in space is also about what kind of things do you bring in there, white male, etc. Then I think we became increasingly aware that it was important also to see how can we make visible that element of your position, which is part of you being in the world and seeing the world and interacting with others. And I don't think we have cracked it yet in a good experiment. You know, we haven't found out a procedure for how to make that visible, but even becoming aware that this is a critical, important part of what we are doing is something that to me has been a great revelation. And I remember when Olaf were up here in, in the main room started talking about, you know, the, the need to make that visible. I was, I was a little bit surprised and I didn't quite know how to place it and where to place it. And now it's just, you know, informing a lot of the discussions we have. And maybe it won't turn out and turn into something that's a great experiment, but it has really shifted the kind of way that we are working. It may not be that seeing is the best metaphor for it. Maybe it's not perspective that's the best metaphor. We are trying out different ways to conceptualize and make it kind of you know, tangible and embodied. Yeah. What is it like to be in a particular space and what are the implications of it? But, but that notion has uh, really come much more to the foreground. And first it started out very much about relating to you know, who you are as a person, but surprising also to some members of the group, at some point we became very interested in also those kind of non-human agents and non-human actors out there. What does it mean to take their agency seriously? What does it mean not just to see them as automata, but seeing them as you know, life forms in its own right that you can engage with and not become, but get some understanding of what is it like to be? And I think that's been a tremendously kind of interesting development as the project has moved forward. By non-human agents, you mean um, objects, animals, other forms of life? and structures that we built around us? Well, it starts certainly with uh, animals or plants oh. that we know are alive. But, uh, you know, once you open up for that thing there, that notions of agency can go in many directions. Yeah. Now, my, one of my largest intellectual heroes is Bruno Latour with his uh, <laughs> kind of actor network ideas. And, mm -hmm. and there, of course, an agent is something that does something in a configuration. And it's more important that it does something and whether it's technically alive or not alive. But actually making these things visible and making them tangible is very difficult. And I think part of the project is, is going in those directions now. And that's just very interesting. Yeah, that's true. So and, um, this notion of seeing your own blindness or acknowledging that you can't ever fully see it, but you can introduce it as an idea, as this kind of hospitality, acknowledging that there are a certain limit to, if I talk about pluralism and in the traditional Central European, Western European sort of idea of pluralism, we would take it for granted that that's kind of universal, you know, that's the truth. And mm. of course that 
has been debated uh, being wrong for, for a long time already. But there's more to it because normally also science and different art form would be uh, compartmentalized into different sort of discourses and, and strategies and, and they would all have their different kind of verifying systems. And suddenly new, now I see a kind of, because um, uh, it's not really multidisciplinary or kind of trans uh, building bridges it's just a kind of resonating resonating qualities where where one says you mentioned now the 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 triple o's the object oriented ontologist right as a philosophical so direction comes out of the sociologist is a Latour, a philosopher a theorist mm-hmm. for sure and, and and there are unbelievable people um, in within that who are actually quite skeptical to the phenomenologists the philosophers that you I think the phenomenologists are actually more skeptical, if to be honest. They're a little bit more conservative, as I see it. But but nevertheless, so Timothy Morton, Donna Haraway, who's maybe out of a slightly, and, and certainly a more feminist and, and quite inspiring type of theory, uh, Graham Harman, and um, and people who are deeply, uh, should I say, destabilizing for a lot of kind of continental uh, comfort. Um, and And out of that, one can then start to somehow address the blindness, for instance, plants and species, uh, the commerce, the ocean, just like the, the whole system of how we see things even, and and that opens up for a lot of things. But but that alone, I think, also maybe opens up for further and a more uh, and you know more non-binary introductions. So that suddenly you have people who are addressing the blindness with great precision in identity politics or decolonization, who are in fact showing. Uh, putting quantifiable measure to how blind are we actually. Yeah. And this is, I think, um, a great resource. I'm, I'm really grateful for that amazing work because it deals with my own arrogance and my inner, uh, should I say, uh, entitlement. And and that in uh, practice like I have where I'm dealing with the sort of fundamentals of of, well, how do I actually even know I'm having an experience? And is this just kind of consumer uh, shit that I'm being uh, abused by? Or, do you know, how, how do I maintain a critical kind of language as a person in the world? And and so so I see a really progressive uh, opportunity, uh, not, not necessarily uh, only for me, but in the whole construct of what is culture in society and what is science in society and how is culture and science okay, occasionally overlapping in, yeah. for instance, the non-commercial, non-economical, non-capitalist type of um, sort of producing reality and producing knowledge and knowledge that is not about yesterday, but which is about tomorrow. So going back then to this, this question of... of uh, so what is an agent? You know, what what, yeah. what, what are these different things that 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 has life out there? Then it seems to me increasingly that that life is really about creating uh, possibilities for living. You know, that seems to be what life does. Mm. Life creates possibilities for living, and once you take that notion into account, in a sense, you need to think of all these different life forms as something that are in strange ways interacting with each other and co-constructing the world that we all inhabit. Um, and this is a very difficult thing to explore and to visualize. I think Olafur did a, a great job in making this tangible in this uh, exhibit that was in Basel, was it last summer at the Fondation Bela, uh, where basically the, the walls to the museum were taken away and the stream or the small pond outside the museum was allowed to float in there and Mm. organisms was moving back and forth in it and the exhibit was just called life and and in a sense to me it became a very beautiful 
way of opening up what is it actually that life is about and what is it to be in the midst of it and how many different you know things and ways of being coexist with each other how can you make that visible um, and one of our colleagues Katrin Hyman also interviewed a lot of the people who were visiting um, the exhibit to try to see what kind of you know landscapes of experience were created around it and that has turned into a very interesting website that's both about the art, it's also about the experiences. It's also, in a sense, allowing you to get a small peek into how other people are experiencing something that you could have been in the midst of yourself. So that stands out as a, you know, a very, I think, creative and fertile way of bringing in a research perspective and an artist perspective in creating something that stays out there, which is about life. It's also about experience, but it's also opening up a different space for how do we actually share that being in the world not just with other human beings, but with other beings in general. Mm. Uh, Catherine is absolutely uh, stunning. So she is one of the participants, one of the more participants in um, in EER, and she's actually a professor at Aarhus University. And I love the title so much. Uh, when we, in my studio, refer to her, we call her a microphenomenologist. I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but but she has a method of talking to people, which I believe is called elicitation techniques or elicitation uh, and and the method is and that's a that's a good sign of where anthropology has developed some some sophisticated uh, tools is how do you ask people without guiding them into an answer which is virtually close to impossible yeah. she she has a as as a, you know would uh, know um, uh, having already manipulated this interview greatly. No, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, and, and Katrin, as you said, and Andreas, and I thank you for bringing that up. Um, she did these interviews in the exhibition live at the Bayerle Foundation uh, in Basel, and uh, she primarily uh, focused with uh, young people with migrant backgrounds. And you can see that homepage that you mentioned on experiencingaslife.net. And there are some of the interviews there. And as an artist, First of all, I was like wildly impressed with the amount of information she would gather, like the detail, the degree of detail. It was like, a, and uh, and you know, it was it was like psychedelic almost, like so interesting that you know uh, uh, what people would somehow um, give us answers. And it was also just experiencing in the tra public transport to the exhibition. It was like details about a, a young man had, had lost his dog a while back and. And, and, you know, the amount of stuff and the hurly-burly nature of uh, the chaos and, and the kind of open-endedness. And, uh, and of course, me being sort of a trained academic in art school, like this kind of like, it was so rewarding to, to see life in this way. Like life, not be the exhibition, but the actual life. And, and <laughs> for my exhibition to be a part of this interesting uh, uh, sort of uh, type of life, uh, was really interesting as I had no way to um, box it. I couldn't, and you know, that was my next question to her, but how are we ever gonna, what, what, how can we organize this information? It's like empiric or as a method, just non-organizable. And, and, and um, I spoke to that kind of the messiness of the science today, because as soon as we try to compartmentalize it, we can ruin it. It was like really difficult, but of course it's also, not the thing I'm best at uh, organizing things, and 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 a great answer actually I think came from um, from uh, a person you also introduced me to, Joe Dumit, 
uh, who, who in so many ways is a kind of cross-pollinizer, uh, and I think one calls him also STS, science technology uh, studies, where there is generally a handful of fields thrown together, and they are seen maybe all, all at one, yeah, all in one field. Uh, so he's, he is, uh, uh, just as an introduction, I, I wrote it down here, because he is more or less undefinable, but he's an American anthropologist um, and, and, as I said, a sort of a scholar of what is called STS studies. And, and uh, he calls himself an anthropologist of passions, as I, said, hmm. I just like to say it. And he's at the University of California. But the, the, what he said to me was um, he works with, the, uh, as a method, the substance um, as method. Substance as method. Of course, I would like to say, well, that's like art. Isn't it? It's a very close anyway. Substance as method, and 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 that I think gave me greater insight in what the potential was of the micro phenomenology method that Katrin was using in my exhibition in Bi in Bayerle. And and there's many things in this, but maybe the most important EER related thing was me that the process for me to kind of get engaged with this was a process of unlearning. It was a process of learning how to not box and learning how to actually be present to a number of questions that allowed me a sensitivity I otherwise would not have been allowed to. So it was in that sense, you know, this, this is not about being liberated or freedom or these things. It is about recognizing that you're blind and then learning to see again. And this notion of unlearning, uh, of course, in science is not so new because you you leave old science behind and you 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 move on, right? Very hardly. It's not easy. Oh, I see. I always think that. I mean, look at Andreas. He's just like, every time I see him, he's like different. Yeah. Not just different, but like very different. And and his science is actually not, I mean, I get it. It's not a completely new in that way. But but he never takes for granted that what we said last time necessarily is true this mm. time. Yeah, I really like your description of art in the beginning. I'm just jumping back here where you, you discuss the practices of artists and saying that you do an art piece, it sorts of works, and you get into those structures. And I feel that there's a lot of scientific fields that also build like that, that it's an essential part of building a discipline in a way, is to set up standard methods and standard tools and ways that we all agree that's how we do things and that's how we can get this perspective on the world. And really, on the personal level and also on this uh, project level, you're really looking in between the cracks here. So it, it's really interesting in, in this way. It's not, an, as you said, an interdisciplinary inquiry or not even a transdisciplinary. It's just trying to look at the fluid in between. What happens in perspective shift? I think that's a very, that's a very apt description of it. And, and it's a, you know, it's, it's quite amazing to have a project that has been allowed to be relatively yeah. undefined that we can actually go along and then shift what we are exploring as we move along, right? And it's not, it's not kind of out of the blue shifts because there is kind of a red thread going through it that we didn't know would be there beforehand, but over time it gets some kind of a, of a structure to it. And, and, and that's maybe, you know, how can you control a project like that? How can you keep it in line? And the way I think about it is that it's kind of the first is the triangle, right? That mm -hmm. whatever we do, you have to be able to see where is the experimenting qualities, what are the experiencing qualities, and what kind of reflections does it open for. So if, if you can't tick those three boxes, the project doesn't really belong in that space. 
but then inside that space, we, we defined early on kind of three attractors. You can say the project somehow should gravitate towards. Mm. And one of them is about um, uh, sharing perspectives and a sense of weeness. So not just about seeing from the other side, but also realizing how can you how can you bring those perspectives into a sense of we? That's the first attractor. Uh, the second attractor has to do with collective decision-making under uncertainty. So not just what is it like to live in uncertain times and to make decisions, but also to how to negotiate it with others. Yeah. And the third one is about cultural transmission and learning. Right? And, and that just as every project needs to have the experimenting, experiencing, reflecting qualities to it, then I need to see it affiliated with at least one of those three attractors. It can be in an extremely abstract way, but there needs to be that link into it. And it turns out that these kind of very simple markers is creating quite a nice way to separate, you know, what is in here from all the things that I do and probably what Olaf does as well. What, what's in from, you know, what's interesting, but not really part of that project here, which in terms of you know, scientific project proposals is a completely different way yeah. to think about structuring the project. You know, in my world these days, increasingly uh, doing research means getting a grant and getting a grant means getting two PhDs and a postdoc, which is effectively kind of an HR exercise or a training exercise. So at the end of the day, you know, research becomes a human resource economic exercise. Uh -huh. And I think what's so interesting about this project is that, that we have you know, we managed in the proposal to not do it like that, but actually to say, well, this is what the research are about. These are the spaces we're exploring. And it feels incredibly liberating and at the same time very, in a sense, precise that this is the space that we are navigating in. And as soon as we're inside those boundaries, you know, we're fine to explore. And then we can bring in whatever it takes to explore them. But we shouldn't venture outside of that space because then it's not ER any longer. And that's been like a really interesting way to think quite differently about what is it like to do explorations together? What is it like to do research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, think of that. So um, you go into a bar and uh, Andreas is standing at the bar and you say, so what are you doing? Yeah, I'm studying weenus. It's very nice. <laughs> uh, and then he says, and decision-making when you're doubtful. And I said, I mean, this is, I think it's just so valuable, right? And weenus evidently is a topic that is in great need of, of uh, of research, right? Because uh, there's, uh, it's up in the, you see, you see challenges on weenness, or, or you see ideas around weenness, uh, what defines a we? Is it the national border? Is it common interest? Or is it fundamental human uh, acknowledgement and inclusion? I mean, weenness is a scrutiny all the time. And, uh, and I don't have the answer, of course, um, which is why I think it's interesting. And this notion, Andreas, uh, which you have spoken about before, to take a decision under doubt. And, uh, you know, I'm always accused of making choices and no decisions uh, because I always wait until the last minute uh, because I don't know what to do. And now I know not knowing what to do is actually not so bad. I mean, it's like kind of a state and this whole idea of being decisive and successful and having a goal and talk about your intentions rather than your achievements and so on. So now I'm acknowledging why, 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 why my studio under prioritized doubt. I need a space for doubt. I need a space to be hesitant. And well, that means maybe slowing down, but then that is that. Oh, I need to sort of do things that are highly irrational and non-pragmatic. Well, then that is that also. And I need to also be present to that. And uh, and now I'm and now I have that. And I, and and Andreas is one of the sort of say uh, pillars under my uh, my sort of area of doubt in my studio. Um, and uh, cultural transmission, of course, something that I have been so deeply involved with uh, for 
for a long, long time and and so on. But just as I, I not so long time ago, I was uh, showing to a colleague artist, I were this uh, principal uh, sort of idea of doubt and I was just standing here and then he said, well, maybe it should not be doubt, it should be disappointment, mm-hmm. uh, which is a kind of interesting. So I said, okay, I declare here and now this is a disappointing space. Um, there, and, and then I always said, well, that's the very disappointing. Uh, but I think your idea is disappointing too. I mean, you coming here in the first place is a big disappointment, it turns out. And uh, I think we should make a book that is also disappointing with disappointing ideas and and absolutely become extremely disappointing artists uh, as of now. And we agreed immediately on this very disappointing uh, kind of uh, principle. And as you can hear, I'm talking my way out of a trajectory which builds on, should I say, the formalization of, of doubt and the ability to go against your own highly uh, sort of predictable uh, obsession with being successful. And, and, and so it's a sort of exercise in, well, how do we host a narrative that is actually, uh, if not contradictionary, but somewhat, uh, um, and maybe a little bit clumsy, but somehow uh, critical to this sort of definition of uh, the main narrative of, 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 um, of how to be and what is right and what is uh, success in life and so on. Uh, what is achievements and, and intentions and all of that. So, so the work with the ER on one level, I think, influences the kind of very straightforward but also extremely sensitive way we do things. Uh, and, and now we spoke about the exhibition life, but of course that exhibition started a long time ago in this work at my studio where you are exercising the ability to acknowledge that it is the creative element of the being an artist type of question, and I normally never try to get close to that sort of uh, work, or uh, that sort of question, lies not in whether you choose this this or that material, metal or, or, or wood or red or blue, or it doesn't, that doesn't really actually matter because that's the form. The reason is, why do you do it and what's the consequences? And am I even able to see the consequences? What's the consequences in my view and outside of my view and and uh, and see suddenly you are in an interlinking element suddenly you're relating or interacting or connected to the world and creativity in that way straightforwardly lies not in some internal sort of mildly uh, kind of um, high, uh, mildly sacred or any sort of um, contemplative no mm. cre- the creativity lies in the structuralism of how our decisions or indecisions or doubt or disappointments impacts the world. And and this is, I think, where we are in a methodology where we are not formalizing anything yet. But of course, if we now do this for five years or 10 years or 100 years, then that is highly predictable and, and, and sort of meta, hyper disappointing in a way. And that means we, are not, we need to change again, which is the big conundrum about, you know, you being at a you professor at a university, how on earth do you ever teach? That's always, I always ask, because what you say and how you teach, well, I was trying to unteach, but now I realize that, yeah, but this is good, interesting question. Maybe not the topic for, for this podcast, but, but, but later, how do you teach unteaching or not myth? How do you teach the critique of method turning into another method, oh. which turns into another method? Yeah. I haven't been teaching a, a lot for some time, so I, I don't know really how I teach, but but I think uh, where these things work out seems to be about kind of creating conditions for learning. And I think that's a critical part of it. 
And I think if there is one thing that EER is to me, it is, it's, a very, it's a very unique space for learning. And somehow I can see that the stuff we do there, you know, they stay with me in all sorts of other activities outside of it. Very concretely, we have figured out that from time to time, we have these workshops a day, one and a half day, maybe two days, that are full of kind of strange activities where we are guided to explore interactions with each other, with materials, etc. And I can see that those things and what comes out of those things needs to, you know, that can be processed for a long time afterwards, but it shifts into other terrains. And, and I can give you an example of that. Yeah. So just around the corner from where we are now, we have the UN city, which is the you know, headquarters for the Danish contribution to United Nations. And yesterday they launched um, their latest report, the UNDP, the United Nations Development Programme. Uh, they have written a, a, an extraordinary report about the times we live in called uh, Uncertain Times, Unsettled Lives. Uh, and in it, they give, you know, for UNDP, a very sophisticated analysis of what is the state of the world, not so much in terms of, you know, economics and classical statistics, but really trying to map out what are the fundamental, almost structural policies of the world we live in and how does that impact the lives we have. Um, I was there at a Zoom meeting for, I zoomed in for the opening, I, I couldn't be there in person, and there was a, a terribly interesting uh, discussion going on there. And, and what I could see was in, in my response to, you know, if the diagnosis is, yes, we live in uncertain times and we live with unsettled lives. And I was asked to try to give some kind of a response to that. And the vocabulary I created came just straight out of EER and the EER activities. So the report focuses on identifying what they call an uncertainty complex, all the different things of uncertainties that are coming together now in new ways. It seems to me, though, that inherently uncertainty is complex. It's at the very nature of it. And why is it that uncertainty is complex? Well, that's because uncertainty, to some degree, is about knowledge. It's about knowing something or actually not knowing something about uh, the world. It's also something that is about a state of the world but it's also very much a state of mind. So in that whole notion of uncertainty, you know, it's both about being mm. in a mind state and it's being in a world state. And in that title, you can say we already get the mind and the world interacting with each other, but in a descriptive kind of way. And what I could see coming out of, of our ER activities is that one way to be able to live with that sense of uncertainty is to create these spaces of agency where you actually experience that I can do something in that situation. It's not that I can control it. It's not that I can push it in particular directions, but I can do other things than just being, so to say, overtaken by the uncertainty in the world and the uncertainty in the mind. And that this sense of agency, sense of acting and realizing that you can act is a critical component for it. And in those unsettled times that we live in now, we can see increasingly that these forms of you know, dealing with agency is all about figuring out how do I do that with others? So how do I create frames that makes it possible for me to act in these uncertain times with others? Mm. And in terms of EER and very much inspired by Joe Dumit and his work with contract improvisation, he talks about that, that you know, it's critically important to hold a space within which something can happen. Once you hold that space, you make it possible for people not to be directed, but to explore their agency based on very simple instructions for how they should act together. And a lot of the things we are doing is about kind of holding a space, giving some simple directions, 
and allow participants to do these joint explorations. And it suddenly became clear to me that, you know, if that's important, then an organization like the United Nations, it's not so much about them acting in the world, but it's very much about them, in a sense, creating conditions for people to act together in ways that are mildly coordinated with each other in order to deal with these questions of, you know, uncertain times and unsettled lives. It's about weeness. It's about weeness. Yeah. Mm. And it's about setting up those frames and, and holding the space for it is critical. So, you know, I discovered that being in that UN city by virtual presence, that immediately what I could add into those discussions was stuff that I would never have thought about without the EER activities. Yeah, and I can confirm I am the most uncertain uh, ambassador for the UN mm -hmm. TV, the development program. And it's a paradox because being an ambassador is an interesting field of, of uh, activities where uncertainty is uh, considered um, non-successful. Because they're not really being an ambassador and go out and say, oh, well, I'm really uncertain about things, right? And, and uh, you, dear listener, could maybe... Um, also make the experiment now and say, do you feel uncertain about this uh, in general and the whole situation and what are we talking about? Even though I actually found your description so illuminating, Andreas, thank you for that. But I think that's, and, and try to somehow feel out how that, uh, how does that feel? Like feeling uncertain about, should you be listening to this podcast in the first place even maybe? But, and I think that, that uh, and welcome that experience, be present to it and see it as an opportunity. A little bit like the the different complex amount of uh, doubtful plans growing inside of you right now, do you expect that they later on find an ecosystem within which they will sort out things? Maybe you should not throw pesticides in one group and f fertilize the other group and, and decide in that way. Maybe you will actually be quite good letting things sit and rest a bit and hold that space, as Joe said, and then and then come up with uh, the, the next step, the answer. So yeah, if we want any form of structural change, we just have to agree that we don't necessarily know what's coming mm. after that change. I think, I know we are running out of time, but I think we should yeah. say, let me, let me just say anything anyway. Let's create a situation where we run out of time and we speak beyond what is permittable uh, and, and, <laughs> uh, and challenge the responsibility of you having to deliver and people getting late for things now. So being certain often is on the expense of someone else because you decide on other people's behalf. Right? And being uncertain is, in a sense, more local because you are often uncertain about things and that influences yourself. So there's an introvert, extrovert, mm. and you know the super certain people are like the people who make decisions for millions of people, and, mm. and this is of course gets more and more scary, especially as Joe's method of substances method is very hard to spread and scale substance. Substance is always how does this feel in my head? Substance is local, and 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 that way I see Andreas's point here of of incredible value because that is maybe the future one person at a time and not on behalf of a million or on the expense of a million. Would you like to have a closing remark? Tell us a bit about what you're passionate about right now. I'll give you the last word by saying something first. Mm -hmm. I said a conundrum right? arrogantly. So, <laughs> no, so, well, I'm trying to learn to not focus on how good this podcast will be, but just talking about what I want to talk about. And uh, I'm getting good at that. Yeah. Now I'm really uncertain. Uh, and trying not to be disappointed and I'm actually really happy and, and this is so so exciting but the point is 
What Andreas has been articulating so brilliantly is actually what I'm very interested in. I would like to spread that out on to other questions as well. But I do, uh, I'm really grateful for the learning opportunity to spend time with Andreas and his colleagues and other people from fields uh, who are uh, so generous and they share with me information that destabilizes me and re-stabilizes me. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in these uncertain times that we live in. And it seems that in these uncertain times, it becomes incredibly important to try to define these uh, spaces of relative stability that you know that you can cling on to, that you cannot be taken away from. And because they have this relative stability, you can actually do explorations in there. And it seems almost as if, you know, we are in a world now where it's like climbing up a huge mountain or floating down a river, etc. And from time to time, you get a chance to to stay at a small island. And, you know, from that space there, everything floats around you. But actually being able to see how these kind of layers of small stability develop and how they, important it is to find them is something that I find really interesting in those times here. And it seems to me that in strange ways, uh, you know, collaboration like this one here becomes like such a virtual safe space that, you know, entering in there, interesting things are going to happen that allows you to deal with what else is going on on the outside. It's not that it itself produces value or money or prestige or something else, but it feels like that kind of island that you suddenly get to in the midst of the river. And next time it has moved to another place, but there is a kind of a constant moving along with it. And I think this is important for this project, but maybe it's generally an important metaphor for what we live in, is how do we create these kind of islands of stability that allows us to learn and to have fun and to enjoy. And that is ultimately what experimenting, experiencing, reflecting is about. Thank you so much for the conversation. Um, ah, it was just such good concluding words. I really have nothing else to say. Thanks, Andreas. This was a nice messy ending where you seemed overwhelmed and it's like destabilized essentially. <laughs> and um, no, no, I, I really think, and Kirsi, our sound producer, uh, um, I didn't mention you before, which was uh, a mistake now in this post uh, uh, element epilogue. Uh, where we're saying goodbye, I would like to correct that and uh, also apologize when I say three white male, it's actually four white people and one of them is uh, a woman, if, if that is how you define you uh, on top of that. So, so uh, and that's us here around the table together with uh, a wooden door, which used to be a tree at some point in the past and eventually will deteriorate into a compost at some point as well, because it's not lacquered, it's oiled and so on and so forth. So we embrace and welcome all the different activities in this room, such as uh, this recording, which is about to end now. Thank you. Thanks, bye. That was really nice. This podcast is edited and produced by Kiersey Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermeer and Savannah Schulz. Music by Simon Kag. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.